0: Online, on digital radio and television, and on the ABC Listen app. The Tasmanian Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Happy Monday to you. Coming up on the program today, if you're shipping freight to Europe or waiting on goods to arrive, expect longer lead times and costs to keep climbing.
2: Uh, The impact for us is we're about to enter our onion export season through to Europe, which is a large market for us. Um, So additional costs, additional transit time, is something that the exporters now have to take into consideration with their trade.
1: And frustrations mounting for one local berry business trying to access international students
3: for its workforce. We have got people that are working for us that would like to work uh, a lot more hours to support themselves and their families and to pay for their course here in Tassie. Uh, but we're physically not allowed to to uh, to let them work those extra hours because of these changes that come into place uh, 1st of July 23.
1: That story ahead. Larissa Smith with you for the next hour and feel free to stay in touch and comment on any of our stories on 0438. Nine double two nine three six. Perhaps you've been affected by the shipping problems globally. And that's where we're going to start the show because the cost of shipping freight from Australia to Europe is expected to climb further as more vessels take the longer route around the coast of Africa rather than through the Red Sea and Suez Canal. The Middle East conflict is a big factor here and it's adding millions of dollars to running vessels from insuring the cargo to covering congestion surcharges. As Brett Charlton from Danish freight forwarding company DSV explains.
2: Uh, We're starting to see ships diverting from the Red Sea around the Cape of uh, Africa, Good Hope, uh, which adds about sometimes two to three weeks transit time uh, to any destination coming inwards or outwards, uh, particularly from Europe.
4: And what are some of the reasons they're avoiding that
5: area?
2: Well, war is a pretty big one. Uh, war is... Uh, there's been some attacks on ships. Uh, the US Navy have got uh, a fleet in there. In fact, it's a coalition of, of nations that have taken the navy, uh, navies in there to try and protect them. However, if you want to be a little bit uh, economical about it, uh, the real, one of the real reasons the shipping lines are, are diverting is actually due to cost. If you're an oil tanker going through uh, the Suez Canal... The war risk surcharge with insurance would be about $80 million cost. Oh, well, $80 worth of value, so they'd be paying a percentage on that. We're seeing shipping lines putting their rates up as well, uh, so they're putting surcharges on, on their... They're calling it an emergency uh, contingency surcharge, so roughly, uh, on average, around US $1, $1,550 a container for any containers going through that region. Um, I guess from Tasmanians' point of view, uh, the impact for us is we're about to enter our onion export season through to Europe, which is a large market for us. Um, So additional costs, additional transit time is something that the exporters now have to take into consideration with their trade.
4: And how are the onions transported? They're all put into a sealed container?
2: In the past, they used to use what's called fan where they had the door ajar and used a fan, but those days are over. We're using uh, refrigerated containers with a a set temperature and humidity control. So the the onions can actually reach their destination okay, so the the exporters have been alluding to the fact that they're making contingencies to the temperature variance to make sure that their product reaches uh, the destination with that transit time taken into account. I guess the um, issue is that additional transit time of two and a half to three weeks. We're in a rather enviable position where our onions are definitely still in demand. Uh, Certain events around the world has uh, impacted that particular commodity in the markets. So Tasmania's onions are something that Europeans still want and are willing to take into account that additional transport and cost.
4: Are there any other Australian agriculture industries being affected by this global shipping uh, issue?
2: Yes, every single agricultural, manufacturing, mining, everything is going to be impacted. There's quite a good seed industry uh, that's um, here that uh, goes across to Europe. There's also meat uh, that goes across. Um, In some cases, I believe some lamb goes across as well. I couldn't speak to the salmon industry, whether they're exporting by sea to Europe, but it's Anyone who's considering sending any cargoes to Europe uh, now has to take into account this. So, you know, the the other thing outside of the uh, sewers is our American markets, which are impacted by the Panama Canal. Uh, That's currently going through a drought at the moment. So the number of vessels that are going through that particular port have reduced uh, considerably. Uh, and there are additional costs to go through that. So when you look at it geographically, the two major man-made shortcuts, if you will, to uh, two large markets, being America and Europe, are either impacted by war or weather.
4: Are you finding some people are changing from sea freight to air freight because they're worried about what's happening in the Middle East?
2: Not yet. We think it's coming. Uh, There's certainly been a lot of reports that we should be feeling some strain on on air freight. The other thing that, that we would like to think that most of our trade is between here and Asia, so we don't use those passages. But what we have to remember is that the equipment that we use here in Australia is, goes around the world. So if you've got equipment that's now on a ship uh, for another two weeks uh, or three weeks, depending on, on which transit we're talking about, that cargo that's carried on those ships is holding those containers up for a longer period of time. Ports around the world are all in chaos... But I guess in Australia, we have another issue. We have uh, an industrial action happening uh, in Australia at the moment uh, between the MUA and one of our largest stevedores, DP World. And that's been going on since uh, October. And at the moment, it doesn't look like there's any end in sight. In fact, Melbourne has called, Melbourne ports and and Melbourne government have called it a a major disruption, which is an event that allows the parties to get together and do contingencies. So, for instance, in Tasmania, here we use Melbourne a lot for our transshipment port, and we are finding ships missing Brisbane port and coming to Melbourne early, which means that our exporters have to rush to get their containers on the ship or sometimes miss ships.
4: What about the sea freight route between Tasmania and Melbourne, which is run by a small handful of companies? How's that all going?
2: Well that is a, a shining light uh, speaking to various transport cost com- companies and customers around Tasmania they give glowing reports about our services between Tasmania and Melbourne which is our, our trading route for our ships of course you know over 90 percent of cargo for Tasmania comes on ships or goes off ships uh, so TT line straight link once we're tolls and sea road uh, the carriers across Bass Strait and at the moment Every now and again, there's there's always a, a, a little bit of a concern about capacity to be able to accommodate the loads that we're moving. But so far, so good, I'm hearing that it's been quite smooth sailing. So kudos to Tasmania and our domestic trade.
1: Brett Charlton from DSV Global Transport and Logistics, Talking Freight with Claire Burberry. The Federal Department of Agriculture has ordered a live export ship carrying thousands of Australian sheep and cattle to turn back after it was supposed to travel to Jordan via the Red Sea. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt gave this update on the tanker on RN Breakfast earlier.
6: This is another sign that that the Red Sea conflict is impacting on Australia in all sorts of ways. Uh, You may have seen that there was a live export uh, ship with uh, with sheep and cattle bound for Jordan, uh, which was going to run into difficulty trying to get to its destination. There were, um, understandably, animal welfare concerns raised uh, about the treatment of those animals if the journey had to be significantly extended and as a result of that, the Department of Agriculture, which is the regulator of live exports, has ordered that ship to turn around and come back to Australia. We didn't want to see an animal welfare problem arise uh, because of an extended journey that the ship might not have been prepared for. So uh, I don't have the exact exact uh, position of that ship uh, with me at the moment, but it is it has been turned around and we'll be heading back to Australia shortly.
7: What assurances are you getting about the conditions on board? Are animal welfare standards being upheld?
6: That's certainly the advice of my department, uh, which, as I say, is the regulator of these things. Um, We want to make sure that animal welfare is always at the forefront of live exports, uh, whether we're talking about sheep or cattle. You'd be familiar, I'm sure, that our government went to the last two elections with a commitment to phase out uh, the export of live sheep, and that's a commitment we intend to carry out. Uh, and uh, maintaining animal welfare is a key reason for doing so. I should say, in in, in phasing out that trade, we also see massive opportunities to increase onshore processing of sheep in Australia, which means more jobs Mm. for Australians, better regional economies, but the animal welfare issue is always central.
1: Federal Minister for Agriculture, Murray Watt there, and I'm sure you'll be hearing more about this freight situation, uh, including the live export ship uh, in the coming days. So keep an eye on those digital channels as well. Well, let's switch to fruit now. Have you noticed how cheap some berries are? The industry is dealing with some really low prices at the moment, with many struggling to make a dollar. And growers are pretty frustrated that strawberries are in the supermarket for $2 a punnet or less. Gavin Skirr from Piñata Farms grows fruit in Queensland, the Northern Territory and here in Tassie. And he spoke to Fiona Breen.
8: As a business, we harvest strawberries and raspberries, you know, literally every day of the year, other than Christmas Day and Good Friday, um, somewhere in, in Australia. So we've got three sites where we grow berries uh, here on the Sunshine Coast, which uh, is sort of our winter-spring uh, program largely. And then in um, in Tasmania and Stanthorpe, we also um, grow berries, you know, for, for the remainder of the year.
9: And so how are those times going? Because we've had all different sorts of weather across the various states you're involved in. Is that sort of meaning pe- uh, different seasons are overlapping or?
8: Yeah, for, for us, we, um, you know, we, we try to have an overlap so we don't have a gap. Um, and, and weather events are just part of farming. You know, it's it's not something we haven't seen before. And yes, while it does make it challenging at the time, you know, it, it is what it is. But yeah, there's been a pretty steady flow from from our perspective of um, of strawberries and raspberries, the two berries that, that we grow. Um, and, you the know, d- demand is fairly consistent across the years. So we try to, you know, these grow, you know, a similar amount of, of berries um, to match that demand as possible. Now, that doesn't always work out, obviously, with, with weather and overlaps, as you suggested. But... Um, but yeah, yeah the, the more uniform or consistent we can operate as a as a supply base, the less confusing it is for consumers to see, you know, low prices and high prices and and the like.
9: Well, speaking of prices, there's some really low prices at the moment for strawberries, etc.
8: Yes, um, disappointingly so, to be honest. Yes, yeah, strawberries are, are well below cost of production and have been, um, you know, for most of of the the 23 year so um and that you know that would suggest that we've got the supply demand ratio out of out of balance as as an industry you know we're, we're growing too many for the demand
9: so is that simply going to be a market adjustment for next season maybe
8: yeah and yeah you know, that's that's what um the decision that growers need to make um you know each time they plant is how many they should be planting should they be planting more than they, they were or less and you know as said based on the on the current price of strawberries, there's there's probably a few too many of them around.
9: So, what will it do for your plans?
8: Uh, well, for our plans, is um, yeah, we've we've reduced some plantings at strategic times. Um, the the challenge with us as a, as a year round supplier is that um, if you take them out of the peaks, you then also have less in the shoulders, which is when there's you know still solid demand for them. So, it is a balance, and it's something that yeah, as an industry, we work work heavily on as you know all growers do.
9: Do you think consumers understand the the cost of of a punnet and what goes into it?
8: Uh, I don't think so and why I say that is is that whenever we get um, you know people visit the farm they're, they're blown away by what actually goes into producing you know their fruit in general and, and in this case berries um, and, and a staggered that um, you know that we can do it for such a low price and yeah, unfortunately, we, we can't do that. Our costs have gone up significantly, particularly since COVID. Um, you know, all of our input costs um, have gone up, Labor particularly. Yeah, there's a constant challenge that, that growers um, of all fruit and vegetables are having at the moment is, is doing what they can to, to do it as cheap as possible because we understand the cost of living pressures that um, the general public are under. But yeah, you know, as as farmers, we're we're under you know cost of business pressures um, the same. You know, our costs have gone through the roof as well. So, unfortunately, you know, food is good, you know has to become more expensive in the in the you know in the shorter term. Otherwise, growers you know will stop doing it.
9: Is there a role for supermarkets in keeping the prices a bit higher than what they are?
8: Uh, well, the supermarkets are, are the outlet. You know, they they sell eighty you know, odd percent of. The berries are sold through supermarkets these days. So that that's you know, that's their access to consumers. So yeah, they absolutely need to do the right thing and, and pass on any savings that um yeah, that are in the supply chain through to the consumer. But but the reality is is those supply chain costs are increasing. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, consumers need to prepare for, for paying more for their fruit and vegetables than they're used to.
9: Okay, well, can we segue down to Tassie and tell me where we're at at the moment with uh, raspberries and strawberries?
8: Uh, yes, yeah, so we're in um, yeah, the middle of the season. Then, um, yeah, late January, we're sort of halfway through our, our crop uh, in Tasmania with both raspberries and strawberries. Uh, the season overall has been pretty good for us. We're all um, undercover, as in they're all growing in polytunnels, so it takes the, the rain out of place so we don't get the waste when it rains. Uh, and the temperatures, you know, in Tassie has been, you know, relatively kind to us for, for growing berries. So, you know, so yield is good, quality is excellent. And, um, you know, and it's just it's why we're we're seeing, you know, cheap fruit, I guess, is that, you know, the conditions have been good for producing fantastic fruit.
9: Well, that's what some people are saying. In some areas, the uh, production or the season, the crop is really good.
8: Yes, and that's, you know, uh, as I said, you know, we... We try to grow good crops, obviously, um, and when when the weather yeah, allows that, uh, we do, and then that's where we've got a situation where we end up with a bit too much fruit. However, if the weather was was turns bad um, and challenging, you end up with more waste, and then then fruit becomes short, and that's what really you know causes the the different price of um, you know of all fruit and veg. But berries, in this case, at the supermarket, is um, you know when when weather plays a part in it and causes shortages the price goes up and when the weather you know is really good uh we we end up growing more fruit than we would expect
9: so not too affected by the rains and and flooding in various states
8: uh we've, we've had some wild storms um up here in queensland and a lot of rain uh, but we're out of season for berries up here so yeah you know, so it's had no impact on our berry business it's impacted our pineapple and mango business you know quite heavily but um, but in Tassie, uh, yeah, we haven't had the rain uh, uh, like we've had in Queensland as well as they're all protected. They're all, they're all under cover. So so the rain really hasn't um, caused us any grief in Tassie at all.
1: Gavin Skurr of Piñata Farms, who has fruit growing in Queensland, the Northern Territory and Tasmania as well. It's coming up to 22 past 12 on the Country Are You're with Larissa Smith this lunch hour. Let's look at the workforce in horticulture now. And since a cap on working hours for international students was reintroduced last July, Jack Beatty has been struggling. He grows strawberry runners along the River Derwent and relies almost entirely on international students. Although the cap was brought back to protect students from being exploited, it's put a dent in his farm's workforce.
3: Look, uh, we're struggling at the moment, uh, Clancy. Um, we've just got the bare minimum of people to um, to get the absolute um, you know, bare minimum of stuff done. I've uh, got a field crew of fourteen at the moment. We should have uh, probably twenty at full capacity. As we've we've said previously, we're heavily reliant on um, on student visa holders and spouses of student visa holders for our workforce. And uh, with the changes that came into place on 1st of July 23, uh, limiting uh, work hours for student visa holders, it's, it's really affecting us.
10: What has been the, the practical implications of this? Does this just mean you can't hire more people or just people aren't showing up to work because they can't get as many hours as they might want?
3: You know, in the media, we've heard that there are more student visa holders than ever we're certainly not seeing as many people uh wanting wanting to to work here if if more student visas are truly down here in tasmania uh but obviously the uh, the other side of that too is that we have got people that are working for us that would like to work uh a lot more hours to support themselves and their families and to pay for their course here in tassie uh, but we're physically not allowed to to uh to let them work those extra hours because of these changes that came into place uh, 1st of July 23. Do you have
10: an idea as to what could be implemented that would make your life a bit easier?
3: I'd like to see it go back to the position uh, that we were in uh, 30th of June 23 where uh, student visa hours were unlimited. Government had provisions in place to make sure that those students were uh, maintain their enrollment and por- passing their courses so to me uh, it seems illogical that if somebody uh, has to maintain their enrollment and pass their courses who cares how many hours of work they're doing especially when you consider that um, in agriculture certainly we you know we're desperately short of people even pre these changes so you know, nationally we've got a an inflationary period at the moment and unless uh, we've got enough people to work in agriculture then we'll suffer uh, continued food price inflation so I would say it's in the government's best interest to listen to us in horticulture and agriculture more broadly when we're saying that we need more people working here and please help us and let us go back to where we were before
10: Talk me through why the students uh, make up the bulk of your workforce here
3: Sure. So, obviously, our, our preference would be to employ local people. However, our experience with with that in in this area has been that usually local people, first of all, it's hard to get them to to be interested in the work that we're doing here, and you know that leads us to, to other other people within our you know within the employment pool. Um, so then, if you if you move beyond that. Uh, obviously there, there's the palm scheme where we've got um, seasonal workers coming into Australia however that, um, that scheme is under a lot of pressure because it's been broadened out by the federal government so more sectors have access to people within that pool so that pool itself has been tightened up backpackers, uh, our, our experience with them is that you know again, they're not really interested in the work that we're doing here, and generally speaking we've we've got such a good relationship with the with the Nepalese and Bhutanese student community in particular that we you know we've relied uh, to date on them and we've had very good productivity out of them as well which is which is the reason why we're you know that they're our preference.
10: Talk me through the land that you've got just over here next to us what's happening there
3: so december twenty two uh, we bought the farm next door to us. Uh, 200 hectares, we uh, had an existing 80-hectare farm here. Uh, the reason for the expansion was to, to grow the size of our uh, strawberry nursery plant business. There's significant demand uh, within the strawberry fruit production industry in Australia for plants grown in this area of Tasmania. So we're seeing very strong demand. What has happened to us here is uh, it's it's close to a $10 million expansion buying this farm next door and then developing that farm for increased production we can't afford to prepare any more ground uh, to tap into that extra demand that we're seeing because there's no point tapping into the demand through development unless you've got enough people to actually farm the area so what
10: happens if nothing changes with the workforce that you've got are you concerned about the future of the viability of this farm
3: look we'll still be here uh, but we'll be here on a on a much lower scale than we'd like to be, which I think is, you know, it, is disappointing uh, for for everybody involved in the strawberry industry and and for everybody else in our local community.
1: Clancy Barland talking to Jack Beatty of JCLW Strawberry Farm in Tasmania's Central Highlands. Well, we'll have uh, news headlines and across to the Weather Bureau in just a tick. But before that, it was a jam-packed International Dairy Week in Tatura last week, with Wednesday's sale a highlight. And it was quite a night for Talig Rupner's Cherry Lock Cattle Co. team, whose top Holstein fetched $36,000. Cherry Lock cattle owner Brad Gavlock says there's growing interest in dairy genomics, which is driving sales.
11: She's probably the best young Holstein cow we've ever owned, to be honest. And, yeah, it wasn't an easy decision to let her go, but um, definitely got rewarded for it, that's for sure.
12: Now, is she the one who took out $36,000? Correct. And yeah, is that right. is that uh, a record for you, for your company?
11: It is, yeah. Yeah, that's the highest highest we've ever sold an animal for. Uh,
12: and you also took out some other awards, uh, awards I understand, across um, Jersey and some other categories, so a pretty successful week for you.
11: Yeah, definitely. It was uh it was the most uh successful week. We'd ever had a dairy week, that's for sure, and you know, we've been showing here over twenty years but um it was uh it was definitely a big big week for us across multiple breeds. Yeah, so we were fortunate enough we took out we took out intermediate Holstein, um, with a, a two year old cow that went on to win Supreme all breeds and then we also got Grand Champion Jersey. Um and yeah, it was it was nice that um we also got Reserve Supreme jersey that we didn't own but we had bred and sold through one of our sales and it was nice that one of my one of my good mates and neighbor um had the success with her
12: and what does it mean to take out some of these titles at international dairy week
11: oh it's we're a funny mall bus guys that show cows and <laughs> and we're you know essentially 90 percent of them are uh are just regular dairy farmers that aren't good at golf so this is their hobby um <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's a it's a hobby, it's an interest, and for a lot of us, like for us, it's an actual business. So it's a big cross section of why why people do it. Um, what drives us to do it? It, it is our business. Um, we don't get a milk check. We we do a lot of management cattle and dry cattle and manage cattle for people for embryos and that sort of stuff. So you know we we need to sell cows and we need to sell good ones that uh, to keep the business rolling.
12: Is there growing interest in um, the genomics and the the breeding of dairy cows?
11: Yeah, I think there is. And the last, you know, there was a little lull period there and I don't think our little um, COVID holiday probably didn't help that. Mm. Um, And I just think the the rebound, the numbers at Dairy Week, and I can't quite quote you the exact number, but the sale uh, here at Dairy Week averaged over $11,000. That was all young dry stock. Other than V, the cow we sold, there might have been one or two other milkers but the majority are all young stocks. At average eleven thousand dollars. I think it just proves the uh the interest there. And that was a cross section. Most of that sale weren't you know, okay, yes, we're at Dairy Week, we're at a show, but you know, it was a lot of high end genomic there, potential bull mothers and and you know, you yeah, know, cow family foundation, cow family starters there at um that were a part of that sale. So a real cross section of the industry that um supported supported the sale on Wednesday night.
12: And what actually goes into prepping your award-winning cows?
11: A lot of work, particularly and a lot of headaches in the past few weeks. It's been pretty brutal in the past few weeks, as as everyone's well aware. To keep cows uh, in full production and and flying, it, it takes a lot of work, and it, it's a lot of it's more. It's more nutrition. Um, mm. um, hay quality is, is, is the biggest secret, that's for sure. You know, this year that was made a little bit easier with with some high quality hay made last year. With, with the floods in October, made it very difficult. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a you know, we we brought 41 head to the show, and from our own own cattle and a lot of our a lot of our clients. And yeah, it was tough the last few weeks with the weather, but uh, it was great to get here and catch up with all our. Friends and, and people within the industry that are passionate about the same job that we are.
1: Victorian dairy cattle breeder Brad Gavinlock speaking there with Fiona Broom. Coming up in the second half of the program, remember the national shortage of hot chips last year. It was a pretty sad state of affairs, but today we're going to take a look at how spud production is faring in another major potato growing state. And if you love your fishing, stick around for a really lovely story about a pint-sized angler's big dream to catch a barramundi. That's just a little bit closer to one o'clock. But before that, let's get the latest forecast from the Weather Bureau. Brooke Oakley is on deck today. Any rain around Brooke?
7: Uh, Yes, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning there was rain for most of the state except the northwest with the highest total of 12mm at Copping, followed by 10mm at Pyangana and 8mm in Scottsdale. Since 9am this morning there have been a few showers about the south and the east of the state with Buckland, Copping and Nugent all receiving 1mm of rain. There are still some light showers about the far south, they're expected to clear this afternoon. And then we'll see isolated showers developing about the north in the evening. The other thing for today is that temperatures are well below average for this time of year about southern Tasmania. And if we look at some of those maximum temperatures for today, Hobart only expected to reach 16 degrees, Launceston 22, Devonport 21, Wynyard 20, Curry and Strawn 19, Whitemark 20 and St Helens 19. Those temperatures are warming up a little bit tomorrow into the low 20s and the mostly settled weather will continue. However, there will be isolated showers about the northwest, possibly extending elsewhere during the day before clearing in the evening. On Wednesday, it'll be warm and humid across the state during the morning with maximum temperatures reaching the high 20s. A cloud band is also expected to cross the state during the morning, bringing light rain. That will be followed by a cool westerly change in the afternoon and showers developing about the west. And then from Thursday onwards, westerly winds should prevail for the rest of the week. They will likely be gusty at times and showers will be mostly about the west of the state.
1: Okay, what's happening with coastal waters today?
7: On the coastal waters, we have southerly winds at 10 to 20 knots, tending east to northeasterly through Bass Strait. And the winds are reaching up to 25 knots about the west and the northeast. And then tomorrow, east to northeasterly winds of 10 to 20 knots, increasing to 20 to 30 knots about the northwest in the middle of the day. Winds are lighter and more variable about the southeast during the morning. For the swells in the west and south, today south-westerly one and a half to two and a half metres, decreasing to south-to-southwesterly one to two metres tomorrow. And the current observation at Cape Sorrel is 2.2 metres. In the north, we have swells westerly below one metre, and in the east, a southerly of one to two metres, and a northeasterly around half a metre. And that's the same for today and tomorrow.
1: Any warnings there, Brooke?
7: Uh, for today, there are no warnings, and for tomorrow, there is a strong wind warning for the far northwest coast.
1: Okay, so good news for Hobartians. Uh, the weather is warming up in the next day.
7: <laughs> That's right. Thanks,
1: Brooke. <laughs> Thank you. Brooke Oakley from the Weather Bureau.
0: It's the Country Hour with Larissa Smith on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: ABC Listen.
13: Hello, Richard Feidler here. This time of year is a completely excellent time to do nothing. Let all sense of time and space
2: dissolve as you escape into a sea of extraordinary conversations podcasts that we've selected just for you.
9: On the ABC Listen app, you can listen big to some extraordinary stories, a trove of conversations anywhere you want.
2: Find them all trussed up together, tied up with a bow in one place.
9: Download the free ABC Listen app.
1: Coming up in the program in the next uh, 20 minutes, we'll also take a look at some new technology. Uh, a local berry farm is trialling uh, to try and reduce the amount of plastic uh, using a special heat sealing system, uh, cling film, instead of uh, plastic lids. I know a lot of uh, berry companies across Australia are looking to Europe to see how they are finding new ways of producing more environmentally friendly packaging. It's just going to take a little time. so. We'll take a look at that story uh, shortly. But uh, let's, uh, let's talk about potatoes now. And you might remember this time last year, Australia was in a hot chip shortage due to rain damage to crops in multiple states. So one year on, have supply chains improved to help make sure it won't happen again? Well, according to some of those in the industry, not really. South Australian spud grower Terry Buckley says there's been some close calls already this season.
14: So we've, we've had trouble since. Uh, Crisping industry's had a few challenges where it just scraped through, but it did scrape through. We had to, they had to use varieties they wouldn't normally use and they had to transport from Atherton to Adelaide, which is an enormous freight bill, but they were able to get through. So we haven't had anything that we weren't able to cope with up till now and this year seems very mild and I'm expecting there will be probably some very good yields. It was extremely dry in uh, October, November and it looked like a scorching hot summer coming but at this point hasn't happened and potatoes are like me, 20 to 30 degrees suits them the best and 30 plus is not desirable for potatoes. So there should be some good crops around, but I've given up trying to guess. You wait till you harvest them and see what you've got.
15: So a better season then in the last year and and this season in particular, but are we still just a few bad weather events at any point in the next few years of being in the same situation?
14: We largely are. We largely are. Some of it's a result of variety rights, where companies have control now of nearly all the varieties. So if I see a bad, what I think might be a a year when potatoes might be short, I can't really just buy a variety and put in because most of the processes have ones that they will accept and others that they won't. And I can't get access to the ones that they can accept unless they allow me to. So people don't grow potatoes hoping for a price at the end of it. And the other thing is they've got so expensive that you can't, grow them and then you get to the end time and the market wasn't there like you hoped so so nobody really grows excess spuds and speculates on a good market so it's all very hand to mouth The other, and that's happened all around the world so I think from what I see the, the climate change has probably been more dramatic in Europe and North America than it has here and so they've had quite a number of climate problems in recent years and Previously you could sort of ring up Europe or America and send over some chips if you were short, but that doesn't seem to happen. They're having their own issues and they don't seem to have spares either like we used to have.
15: So does that make it pretty hard for you then? You, You can't plan for a surplus
14: at all? No, we have a tonnage that we work out that we think we're going to average. We always uh, go a little bit on the conservative side and we mostly exceed that, but you can't do it in big amounts. And, um, and when there's shortages, it turns into you know, a lot of tons. The few spares that people have doesn't normally cut the mustard, but I still never seems to be amazed at how close we get to the targets. So we are pretty good at turning out consistent yields. And for every people, person that's got less than they hope, mostly someone gets more than they hope.
15: You don't want food waste. You don't want too many potatoes and you can get rid of. And you also don't want not enough that it won't fill the supply. With more weather events predicted in the future, we were expecting a really dry summer. It really hasn't been that dry. How do you plan? Is there anything you can actually do?
14: We can't plan much. It's the strength. One of Australia's real strengths is that it's such a huge place that the weather events don't tend to happen all over. So um, it will happen again. And we need to do more with an export policy, for instance, that we're consistently perhaps exporting more product that could be shuffled around a little bit more when we need to. But if we do remain entirely within Australia, then these highs and lows are certainly going to happen. But that export market's not there at the moment? It is, and we export potatoes every year, crisping potatoes mostly, and that it works for us. But one of the reasons it's done is because finished crisping spuds are too expensive to freight. You triple your volume once you make them into crisps and they're just too expensive to freight. Um, but we continue to do it and there's continuing demand. But Australia's cost of production is very high and it is hard to compete in some of those markets.
15: South Australian potato farmer Terry Buckley. So how much will the changing climate impact on Australia's potatoes? Dr Stephanie Jacobs, Senior Climatologist with the Bureau of Meteorology, says farmers will have to learn to adapt. So
16: we are in a transitional climate and there are many uncertainties to grapple with. So this means that the weather we have experienced in the past will no longer be the best way to inform decision-making in the future. So this will certainly require farmers and producers to adapt their planning methods.
15: So for potatoes, they like between 20 and 30 degrees and a, and a bit of rain, but not too much at once. That's mm-hmm. going to be a bit of a tall ask in, in Australia in coming <laughs> years?
16: I mean, it's not going to be apocalyptic every day, but there's definitely increased chances of extreme temperatures, uh, extreme fire weather, uh, extreme heavy rainfall events, particularly heavy rainfall events where the rain is occurring within 24 hours. So those are associated with flash flooding. They're expected to increase.
15: When I was talking with one of the potato farms, he said, you know, something good about Australia is that because it's such a large nation, hopefully if your area gets impacted, another one won't. But are we starting to see that kind of change that multiple states can see these weather events in the same season?
16: Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's definitely people are adapting their agricultural practices. The wine industry is definitely expanding into Tasmania. But future climate models do often predict potentially some more widespread events. So some research has shown that heat waves may become more widespread. So rather than one area of Australia being impacted, this could actually be a larger area being impacted by the same event at one time putting a
1: strain on resources. Bureau of Meteorology Senior Climatologist Dr Stephanie Jacobs speaking with Elise Adamo. And uh, the Tasmanian potato harvest is expected to start within weeks and run until June, so we'll keep you up to date with how production is faring in the coming months
0: new from abc books we've already fallen in love with Mustard dogs no one would have predicted that a show about a bundle of puppies could take the nation by storm now the series narrator lisa miller takes you behind the scenes in the new book Mustard dogs from pups to pros like so many of the shoots not everything went to plan i mean they were working with animals right Mustard dogs from pups to pros by lisa miller and audiobook available in bookstores and online.
1: It's been a great series so far and uh, you certainly can catch up on those episodes on iview too. Well, let's take a look at some new tech for a Tasmanian berry business. Burlington Berries at Cressy is trialling a new way of packaging strawberries and raspberries this season. It's sealing punnets with film instead of a lid And while it's still plastic, the company hopes it's the start of further work exploring environmentally friendly options. I called into the Packhouse to catch up with its manager, Michelle Jones, to find out more.
5: Okay, so our fruit gets picked directly into the punnets on the field. Uh, they start roughly around about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. The fruit's then transported down to our pack house here at the back and then it's put into our fridge. It's chilled down to below, um, below 3 to 5 degrees. Once that fruit has been chilled down, we bring it out to the packing lines. Every single punnet is then picked up and assessed for quality. It's uh, checked to make sure that it's within supermarket specs. Uh, then a lid is placed on it. It then comes down the, the back of the, um, of the conveyor belts into a box. It's then put onto a pallet and then into our other fridge where it then gets packed onto a truck. Uh, twice a day we have our fruit delivered to the DC in Devonport. From that point it gets delivered onto the toll ship or the Spirit of Tasmania uh, in the evenings and it's transported across to Melbourne the next morning and distributed across Australia from there. So basically from paddock to plate within 24 hours? That's correct, yes, within 24 hours. We pride ourselves on our shelf life, being able to stand the test of time that we we can guarantee that the fruit quality will be good enough for um, the four-day travel that it takes to get to WA uh, and also up to Queensland, all across Australia, also within Tasmania as well.
1: What are you doing as a business to experiment with new ways of Packing the fruit?
5: Yes, uh, together with ProSeal this season, we are trialling a heat seal program, with it, which is uh, instead of a lid, it's a film that goes across uh, the top of the punnet. Uh, we're doing that for two different uh, berries this year in two different pack types. We're doing raspberries in the 125 gram punnets and strawberries in the 250 gram punnets, uh, mirroring pretty much what the UK does as well. We do pack for Driscolls, so we're also sort of like testing that uh, with consumers. Very, very Similar to the cherry uh, tomatoes that you see now currently in, in the supermarkets with a with the heat seal. So yeah, so we have our our fourth line this year uh, is the is the heat seal. How does it work? It's very similar to our other lines that we have. Uh, The punnets are picked directly from the field into the trays, comes down and chilled down exactly the same way. It's brought out to the conveyor belt that runs the heat sealer, placed onto each of the scales, similar with um, making sure that they're within spec. But placing the punnet back onto the conveyor belt obviously without any film or, or punnet lid on it. It then comes through our check wire, making sure that the weight is correct. Uh, then going through the heat sealer, which instead of a person placing a lid directly onto the punnet, it is going through a machine. This one is a three-punnet machine, so it's sealing three punnets at a time and then comes through to the end and it's boxed exactly the same way as, uh, as our other products are as well.
1: So it's less plastic than uh, using a plastic lid?
5: That's correct, yeah, um, the benefits of having the, the film is far outweighs having the packaging, uh, number one for storage, but also for our carbon footprint as well, having, um, having the film we 're looking at the space of a pallet of film that we have here for the rolls that will actually do us for the entire season, and that equivalent is around about thirty eight pallet spaces of lids just for the same, for the same amount.
1: When you go to say a farmer 's market, you can often buy fruit that's in a, a punnet and it might be made of paper. In that instance, could you look at going down that path or are there issues with how the paper might absorb moisture or, or keep the raspberries and strawberries
5: There is some discussions that is taking place for future technology to be able to have it into the cardboard punnets that you do see with um, some other products. Uh, At this stage, we are sticking to the plastic punnets because of the breathing facility that those punnets do have. We pack blackberries, raspberries and strawberries and at this stage, obviously, as I mentioned, we're only doing the raspberries and strawberries into the heat seal. But you need to have that breathability that the the, um, plastic punnet still does support. Uh, but there is some talks, obviously, about moving that totally across to to being a, yeah, a totally plastic-free punnet. That would be great. With this technology, we're certainly one step sort of closer to that that happening. Uh, with doing this trial this year for us, we're sort of obviously wanting to see the effectiveness of it, uh, the efficiency that it's bringing about. But yes, obviously, reducing our carbon footprint is very, very important as well to Burlington.
1: How busy have you been this summer compared to the last?
5: Uh, we have a second site uh, now and it's all coming through the same facility as it has done for the previous 10 years. Uh, every year has um, brought about an increase of fruit volumes but, yes, we are certainly uh, at high production at the moment. Having the four lines this year has certainly helped us to be able to push the product through and not sort of, you know, doing like those 12-hour days which we have certainly have done in previous years. Uh, so we're not stretching our, our staff to capacity and, you know, tiring them out too too much. Uh, but we're, we're still able to sort of push that, uh, that fresh product out. And as I mentioned before, it's going out the door within a 24-hour period from when it's first picked.
1: Michelle Jones is the packhouse manager at Burlington Berries at Cressy, trialling a new way of sealing its raspberries and strawberries this season.
0: Coast to Coast, this is The Country Hour with Larissa Smith, On ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: We're going to catch up with Joel Reinberger to find out what's happening in your afternoons in a tick. But let's go to fishing now. And for some, it's it's a pretty peaceful activity. For others, it's very frustrating. But for this 13-year-old boy, it's his lifelong obsession. And he's travelled far and wide in search of the big one. But as Pat Heaney explains, his angling adventures have allowed him to do far more than just catch fish. Oh,
17: that's a big fish! That's well over a
18: metre fish.
0: Cooper Smiley is an angler at heart.
18: Um, when I was about two or three, my dad took me down to a pier and I caught my first ever fish, which was a tailor. And then ever since then, I've always asked him to go fishing.
0: He's caught almost every species on Australia's east coast.
18: Keep the rod tip up, Deal, keep the rod tip up.
0: But still has a few more on his bucket list.
18: Well, I want to catch a really big barramundi that's probably over, like, 120 And a mangrove jack over 50 would be something really cool. I don't know, it's just always peaceful and quiet. I just get to sit down and relax all day until there's a fish on. And, yeah, it's pretty fun, I guess.
0: 13-year-old Cooper has a rare condition which causes intense, painful reactions when his skin is exposed to air and water. Complex regional pain syndrome sends mixed messages between the nervous system and the brain. The disease affects around 5,000 people in Australia, and is known as the world's most painful, incurable condition.
18: So it can be quite a hassle to deal with at times, um, which can be quite debilitating, and I have to go out in a wheelchair um, sometimes. And yeah, so it can flare up from doing too much activity. So I've got to sort of limit myself
17: when I go fishing.
0: Cooper's mum, Melinda, says his symptoms can change rapidly.
17: If that pain flare decides it's going to hang around for a while, he can spend months and months at a time in bed and unable to really mobilise. And that's why we make the most of every single opportunity that we can to be able to go out and enjoy life and and have fun because we actually don't know what this afternoon will even look like.
0: The Newcastle-based Smiley family have taken that sentiment to heart and four years ago decided to hit the road.
17: It was a dream of ours a long time ago to be able to travel and and see the country ourselves. And Cooper had an accident and was diagnosed with CRPS. And we had the challenges of that for a few years while we learnt to live with that condition. And then we went, you know what, life's short. Let's just get in the van and travel around and we work and we stay and we immerse ourselves in local communities and we love it.
0: They've travelled up and down Australia's east coast, And after Cooper gained millions of views on fishing videos posted to social media, the next destination is dictated by his angling adventures.
17: We didn't expect the fishing to take off the way it has. One day he took an old GoPro out with him and and took some footage and he popped it onto YouTube and it just went from there and it just became a little fishing rod to a bigger fishing rod. We now travel with two cars and one car is full of fishing gear.
0: President of the Purple Bucket Foundation, Kim Allgood, believes Cooper's work is vitally important.
19: There's not a lot of awareness about CRPS. We still have doctors and pain specialists and what have you that aren't too sure what it is or how to treat it. I can't imagine having this sort of pain if I was a younger person. Um, I think it would be extremely difficult. I think we automatically think with our children, no, it can't be that bad. Give it a rub, it'll be better. But with CRPS, it's, it's not that simple. And it takes time for anybody and everybody to even really think, oh my god, it must be bad, um, because rubbing it's not going to make it better. So I think we all need to really stop and think, especially our medical community. Um, we need to trust our kids. Give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt. I mean, our kids with CRPS are really in a lot of pain. They need the correct treatment, they need your help, and um, they're suffering because of it. And um, we need to do something about that.
0: Cooper says he's grateful to have a platform to share his adventures, both with fishing and his rare condition.
19: What well, I'd like to do really
18: well on uh, my Instagram and TikTok, even better than I already am, Um, because that's bringing a fair bit of awareness to my condition anyway. I've been working with a few different foundations and uh, help uh, upskill some doctors on how to deal with it better. And uh, I've been working with their CRPS Awareness, the Purple Bucket Foundation, writing some uh, news articles and stuff uh, to post in their newsletter. And um, yeah, it can be something that's quite hard to live with. It was a little bit of a tough experience to start off with. Um, Otherwise, just a bunch of big uh, freshwater species that I've been chasing for a few years and yeah.
1: Oh, what a lovely story. Cooper Smiley, finishing that from Pat Heaney. And there's a terrific video you can watch online of Cooper in Action. Just head to the ABC News website. And he he jumped in the water and he actually had one of the ABC mics on him, uh, which was lost, but uh, he had a terrific time filming that story. So good on him. Time to find out what's uh, in store for your afternoons with Joel Reinberger. What are you reeling in, Joel?
13: G'day there, Larissa. Look, we're talking dogs today. This is a dog that's familiar to people in Tasmania, the Smithfield. Everyone knows the Smithfield, the kind of fuzzy-faced collie, but it turns out that they're virtually unknown in the rest of Australia and also virtually unknown in England where they're from the breeds kind of disappeared. So this is apparently the last remaining bastion of the Springfield. Uh, sorry, Smithfield, Springfield. Yes. The oh. Smithfield. I've, uh, I'm getting it wrong there. Uh, the Smithfield, they, you know, they're all over Tassie. I see them at the dog's home occasionally, so they're making their way into backyards. So we're going to talk to a Smithfield breeder.
1: Oh, terrific. They are um, beautiful dogs, though. Like, I do come across them um, when I'm out and about visiting sheep properties because some owners prefer to use them over border collies or kelpies. and Yeah, it's, it's not uh, something that we're familiar with.
13: And apparently they take a little bit more training than the Border Collies do. Their temperament's a little bit different. The way they approach the sheep is a bit different. So we're going to get into what they're actually like as a dog uh, and uh, why they've kind of, they're common here and so uncommon everywhere else in, in the country. Um, we're also today got Wildlife Talk back. Dr. Sally Bryant is uh, back on the radio today, as am I. So she's going to be uh, taking uh, your calls about things you may have observed over your Christmas holidays, things you've seen, questions you have about animal behavior. Uh, and we're going to talk uh, about the uh, Silver Salties Surf Life Saving. So uh, older folks getting back into the water and learning those surf life saving skills.
1: A wonderful program. Thank you, Joel. Stay tuned for that. It's coming up to one o'clock.
13: The ABC Listen app makes listening to ABC Northern Tasmania, wherever
0: you
6: are, as easy as, well, ABC. Tap on our logo to stream us live and free and you'll also find a button to call or text us direct from the app.